following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Our Bible reading this evening comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 26. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now I will pray for Richard while he comes up. Father, I pray that you would bless Richard and that you would open our ears and our hearts to be receptive to his word. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good evening. Can you hear me? Well, that's a good start. In the earliest days of the church... We're talking 20, 30 years after Jesus. There were no church buildings. While, of course, this meant that they were deprived of the chance to spend time and money on window and roof repairs. How blessed are we in comparison? It did mean that they met in people's houses. Not everyone's house would do. I mean, who wants to meet in the house of Mr. Poor Man? It's dark and pokey, and he only has instant coffee. Not to mention Mr. Slave Man, who doesn't have a house at all. We kind of wonder whether they should really be allowed to be participating in our services. But the Apostle Paul seemed to think that was a good idea when he was with us, and frankly, it's been a problem ever since. But anyway, we're lucky because we have Mr. Rich Man in our congregation. He owns the Amazon warehouse out near the Temple of Apollo. And his house is really big, really lovely. Lots of chairs and tables, a great view, and he serves the best food we've ever eaten. So we meet there. End of story. (coughs) And Paul writes, Sorry, 
Excuse me? You all trek out in four-by-fours to Mr. Richman's place? What a mess! Or as the NIV translates it, in the following directives I have no praise for you. <laughs> for your meetings do more harm than good. The basic issue here at this stage in 1 Corinthians is that the rich and the poor in Corinth are not in any serious way joining together to eat the Lord's Supper, what we, what we, we today might call Holy Communion, <coughs> except that it didn't look then much like it looks now. Then it was in a house. It was a proper meal that included bread and wine at a certain point that was prayed for, given thanks for, and Jesus' death brought to mind and celebrated, whereas now it is a church service in a church building, not really a meal at all, but represented in a certain way by taking a small piece of bread or a wafer and a sip of wine, COVID permitting, and then all going back to our seats. The point of explaining this difference is not to say that we should all go back to first century practice. I don't think that's ever really the straightforward way of sorting out church life. And in one way, we do get something absolutely right today when we have a communion service, which is that whether we are rich or poor, high and mighty or meek and mild, well-dressed or scruffy, well-spoken of or a bit odd, whatever we are, we all get exactly the same at communion, the same piece of bread or wafer, the same sip of wine. I almost want to say, Holy Communion is no respecter of persons, if you get what I mean. We are all on the level as we take bread and wine, remembering Christ's death, proclaiming its significance until he comes again, that's verse 26. And in this, we get something exactly right according to Paul. Even so, we do miss out on something too, which is that the meal we share was indeed originally a proper meal. And the issue of what we eat, how we share it, with whom, and in whose name we eat, these are all really important aspects of what Paul is talking about in quite a lot of 1 Corinthians. And I suspect that today we tend to have one way of thinking about Holy Communion, on the one hand, and another way of thinking about the rights and wrongs of our eating habits, on the other hand, as if these were two separate things, when in Paul's mind, I don't think they are. So a quick review of what was going wrong at Corinth, followed by a quick reflection on what we might need to learn today. Though incidentally, it's only because they were getting it wrong in Corinth thus forcing Paul to write to them and sort it out that we actually know anything at all about how the early church celebrated uh, communions or the Lord's Supper or whatever they were calling it. So in a funny sort of way, we're grateful they were making such a mess of it in Corinth because that means that we get to find out what it's about. First, when the church gathered in people's houses, the rich apparently ate well and did not share with the poor. Perhaps each brought their own food, 
but then it went wrong. It's like a bring and share meal where we bring, but we don't share. Have you ever had one of those? It can be a bit awkward, can't it, as you look around and realize what different people have brought. Hence, Paul says, when the Corinthians do this, verse 21, you are basically not eating the Lord's Supper at all, but your own private suppers. Secondly, that doesn't quite mean that they were supposed to radically stop having rich and poor among them. To be honest, they only had homes to meet in because some of the early Christians were well off enough to have houses big enough to host gatherings. Thus, verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you. Though I don't think Paul is overly impressed by this, and on another occasion he might like to have a go at them about that too. But he's got enough on his plate, to choose an apt metaphor, with trying to sort out communion. So, one thing at a time. Thirdly, they should be remembering the thing that is really radical, which is that they are eating together at all in the first place, rich and poor, gathered in one house. Well, thinks Paul, this is good, and indeed this is remarkable. But because they seem to have forgotten why they're doing it, he actually thinks, verse 17, that their meetings may be doing more harm than good. And so he goes on, this is verses 23 to 26, if you're looking at it, to remind them why they celebrate this meal at all because it takes them, it takes us, back to the actions of Jesus on the night he was betrayed, and it puts us in touch with Jesus' death. Churches have been arguing ever since about how exactly it puts us in touch with Jesus' death. Luckily for me, that's not Paul's issue here in this passage. He doesn't have one view of communion that he is opposing to another view of communion. No, he has one view of how important the meal is, and he's opposing those who don't seem to grasp that it's particularly important, or whose eating habits at the meal suggest that they just don't get it. Well, allowing for that, can we still say anything about our understanding of communion in the light of this passage? Well, as he took the bread and broke it, Jesus said, this is my body. So that's something. But you probably don't need me to tell you that how exactly he meant those words is a bit unclear. I think the Church of England has it just right in our communion prayers when we say, and if you haven't clocked this before, you'll hear it uh, when Aaron is praying later, this bread and this wine become for us the body and blood of Christ. In other words, this, that is what it means or signifies or enacts for us. And the abstract question of whether the bread is somehow objectively Jesus' body and blood is not quite the issue. Martin Luther disagrees, as far as I understand it, and in due course bangs his fist on the table, repeating over and over again, this is my body, in one of the great church APCMs of history at Marburg in 1529. But that's another story. We can also note that eating the bread and drinking the wine symbolize that we are part of God's new covenant, God's commitment to us, shown in the death of Jesus, which death takes away our sins. 
It's hard to tell in our translations, but in verse 23, Paul says something like, I'm handing on to you from God a tradition about Jesus on the night he was handed over. It's a really strong emphasis on how all this goes back to God, both the tradition about Jesus and what Jesus did. He was handed over to death. Some say the emphasis here is that he was handed over to death by God to bring about our salvation. But however you look at it, what comes out of Jesus' death is the new people of God in this new covenant. And we are all in that together. So as Paul will go on to say in the next bit of the passage, we take bread and wine together to show that we are all one together in God's church, which he calls the body of Christ verse 29, to show that the communion meal really does, in a significant way, bind us together. And I just want to mention for a moment something that he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which I think is one of the Bible's strongest statements on communion. Paul has spent some considerable time arguing about whether you can or can't eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. The answer is yes, but maybe no, except when it's no, but maybe yes. And in wrapping up that argument, he makes the point, which will explain why it's a yes and no answer, that whenever you eat in a context of worship, there is more going on than just consuming food. You are bound to whoever you eat in honor of. So, this is 1 Corinthians 10, eat, uh, eat the bread and wine as Christians together in our worship and we are participating in Christ. Eat food offered to idols in the context of idol worship and we are participating in idol worship. And I do wonder if this extends to a whole way of thinking about eating that we could learn a lot from, that our meals symbolize our allegiances in quite powerful ways. This is a point that I think vegetarians and vegans grasp quite naturally, even if meat versus vegetables is not Paul's issue in this passage. But the point remains from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, brothers and sisters, who do we eat with in the kingdom of God? Who do we share table fellowship with? And one part of Paul's answer is, we share food much more widely than with people who are just like us. We share our food much more widely than with people who are just like us but we share with people of all social status and standing, richer than us, poorer than us, different from us in all sorts of ways, politically, ethnically, socially, and in terms of our views on all sorts of issues except this one core issue, which is that we are all bound together by our allegiance to Christ. And while that may be a challenge to our way of organizing our lives, our meals, our homes, we can at least immediately and regularly be part of signing up 
for this new boundary-defying way of living by, can you see it coming? Taking bread and wine in communion together as equals at the foot of the cross. Indeed, thereby proclaiming the death of Christ on the cross to a world that needs to hear it until he comes again. As we come forward to receive, all of us, from the greatest to the least, are equal as we take bread and wine. And all of us, together, as St. Nick's, as part of the worldwide church, interrupt whatever else we are doing, whatever other projects are taking our time, and we bow the knee to our one true Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, as if to say, despite everything else that occupies us in our lives, everything stops, everything stops as we come and bow before Jesus. And what's more, as we do it together as the body of Christ. So to sum up, think of two things when you come to take bread and wine. One, it binds us to Christ in loving memory of and participation in his death for the sins of the world, because of which we have hope at all. Two, it binds us to each other as the body of Christ, rich and poor together, the confident and the shy together, the strong and the weak together, and as I was saying earlier to my wife, the tall and the short together. We are in this together, and when anything gets in the way of communion enacting that double commitment, celebrating Christ, celebrating with each other, then we are losing the plot. Back in Corinth, Mr. Rich Man, Mr. Poor Man, and yes, even Mr. Slave Man, and all the other men and women and even children gather together. They are still meeting at the rich man's house, but now the food is shared. They wait for everyone to arrive. They make sure everyone has bread and wine. And this is a scandal to those who are seeking to get ahead in status-conscious Corinth. But it's a scandal that they enjoy celebrating as they recall the words of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And 2,000 years later, look at us here at St. Nick's, still joining in in the way the church has received this story of Christ, and above all, joining in together. Sisters and brothers, let us keep the feast. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.